God, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we confess our great need for you to reveal the truth that's in this passage. God, our temptation is just to hover over the text or just to kind of sit on the outside of it and, and to look at it from afar and maybe to agree with it, maybe to rely on some familiar aspects of it that we've heard in the past. But God, we, we need so much more than that. God, we, we need this text to invade the deep places of our hearts. God, we need you to, by your light, to reveal the darkness that's in our hearts. God, we need you to do a work that only you can do. So God, by your spirit, would you lead us into the truth? Would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to discern the beauty of Jesus that we see in John chapter 21? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Every good story involves a good ending. Specifically, it's a story that knows when to end. I think the timing of landing the plane, so to speak, is crucial and is perhaps what separates a good story from a great story. There's nothing like listening to a good story, reading a good book, watching a good movie, even listening to a good sermon, and the ending goes on and on and on, just kind of drags and drags and drags. Well, we come to John 21, and we wonder, why add this chapter? If you take John's marvelous work, just kind of take a step back and look at it, it really should have ended at the end of John chapter 20, if you think about good endings. It doesn't get any better than having John's gospel end with the resurrected Jesus. So why does John add this last chapter? Well, this epilogue, I think, is helpful because it helps answer one of the most important questions in the Christian life. This question that you and I will wrestle with from time to time that John, I think, kind of addresses head on here is this. What do I do when I have failed spiritually? What do I do when I have fallen into sin? Maybe I've fallen into doubts. What do I do when I feel like I've, I've lost some of my effectiveness in ministry? See, what we find in John chapter 21 is we finally discover what happened to Peter. Like we know that Peter denied Jesus three times in John chapter 18. We know that uh, in the book of Acts, Peter goes on. He becomes this great leader for the other church. He writes a couple letters in the New Testament. But only in John chapter 21 do we know the details of how Peter was, was restored and how Peter was reconciled to Jesus. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning, and here's why. It's because sooner or later, you will eventually ask yourself this question, God, can you still use me for your purpose and for your glory? Eventually, you will ask that question in the Christian life, that perhaps you do fall into sin. Perhaps you do wrestle with doubts. Perhaps you are questioning your effectiveness in ministry. So sooner or later, you're going to ask that question, God, can you still use me for your purpose and for your glory? See, what I find in a lot of Christians and even in my own life from time to time is that question, God, can you still use me, is being driven by a type of paralysis that is developed when we look backward. When we look at our past, at the things that we have done or, or the things that have been done to us, or that question is being driven by a paralysis that's developed by maybe looking into the future, 
that we're maybe worried or afraid about what's coming in the future, about the things that we can't see or, or the things that we don't know or the things that we don't understand. And that type of paralysis, that fear, is sometimes translated into this question, God, can you still use me? I think that's exactly where we find Peter in John chapter 1, this question that he's asking. See, throughout your life, if you haven't realized it already, you will have this, this battle, this continual pull towards fear if you listen to the steps behind you or if you look at the steps in front of you. And what the world will try to convince you of is, hey, don't, don't worry about the future. Don't, don't pay any attention to the past. Just, just kind of live in the moment. Live your best life now in the present. All that stuff doesn't matter. Or the world might convince you, hey, just busy yourself. Throw yourself into work or, or distract yourself with, with social media or, or just pleasure yourself. You know, try to find comfort in this world to kind of throw yourself in. But I think that Jesus offers a different way. I think through the gospel and through this chapter, we see Jesus offer a different path forward. See, what I love about Jesus in this, in this chapter is we find Jesus playing the role of this master locksmith. We see Jesus kind of uh, unlock the, the, the shackles and the chains of this type of paralysis of our past and, and this type of fear that enables the disciples to move forward and absolutely change the world. And I think that Jesus wants to do the same thing with us. So let me point out a couple of things that I think Jesus does here, specifically with Peter and, and with the disciples. The first thing I think Jesus does is he addresses the failure of the past. Notice what's going on here in this passage. You have these seven disciples, and they decide to go out fishing uh, on the Sea of Tiberias, which is also known as the Lake of Galilee. They go fishing because Peter is the one who recommended it. They kind of follow Peter. But the text tells us they go out during the nighttime and they catch nothing. It's not until verse 5 that, that we see this, this voice, Jesus, who asks this question that no fisherman who's on an, an unsuccessful fishing trip wants to be asked, do you have any fish? right? And they sadly say, no. I've been there before. I'm not a skilled fisherman, but last weekend I had the opportunity to go on this, uh, this lead pastor retreat uh, down in Florida with some of the other lead pastors in, in kind of the College Park family of churches. There are five of us, and we uh, spend time every year kind of planning, doing some spiritual renewal and some relational connecting. And so one of the things that we did was we went deep sea fishing, I know this kind of sounds like the start of a bad joke, five pastors go deep sea fishing. It kind of felt like it, let me be honest with you, because what we told our wives before going out there was we said, hey, you know, don't worry about any dinner plans tonight. We're going to catch so many fish that we're going to come back and we're going to eat fish tonight. And so we go out there, and this is like a half-day excursion. They take us out there. It took about an hour to find the right spot, put the anchor down, and immediately, one of the pastors starts to vomit into the, into the water, just nonstop. He's just going, going crazy. And the sound of that and, you know, just kind of the water leads another pastor to start vomit in the water there. True story. So two down, you know, three to go. And, you know, we start fishing, and, and it occurred to me, 
you know, we're catching our dinner right now. These guys are vomiting right here. And the, you know, so I'm like, maybe we could kind of keep moving along here. Well, so we start to move a little bit. And there's another pastor that starts feeling sick. And he has to sit down. He doesn't vomit. He, says, he sits down and they, they say, hey, you know, find a fixed point in the horizon. That'll kind of help center you a little bit. And so he literally doesn't talk, doesn't move for like a couple hours, just staring straight, you know, trying to keep it together. And so basically three of us are down, two are left, and, and happy to say it was me and Pastor Mark Vrogop. So, so we made it. And we're not very good fishermen, though. We're trying to catch dinner and, and you know, trying to, and we caught a few fish, but we basically had to call the trip off a little. And let's just go back and, you know, maybe order some Chick-fil-A or something because this is not going very well. Now, I share that with you because you get to John 21, you look at the scene here, and it would make sense if, if there were a bunch of pastors going out trying to fish, right? And they catch nothing. But that's not what's going on here. These seven disciples, at least a few of them, we know Peter himself was a professional fisherman, right? His livelihood was dependent on catching fish. And yet, what does the text tell us? The text tells us that they catch nothing, so you think John is trying to show us something here? He's trying to show us something deeper of what's going on here if the disciples are to move forward and for God to use them. See, what we find here, if you notice the scene, they're fishing and it's in the dark and they catch nothing. Darkness has been one of John's common themes to kind of metaphorically describe the spiritual condition of a group of people or of a particular individual. See, we find the disciples, if you know your Bibles well, and this reminds you of something, this is the exact same thing and the exact same location, the Lake of Galilee, in which Jesus first called them to follow him, according to Mark chapter 1.14. They're back exactly where they started. And for them, even though they've seen the resurrected Jesus, it's still all sinking in for them. Like they're still kind of connecting the dots of, of what's really going on and, and what the mission and purpose of their life actually is. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They don't have the, the sense of clarity and mission and purpose that the book of Acts kind of portray them to be. The disciples here in this boat, they're searching. Disciples here are, are probably, if you can use your imagination, they're probably asking a lot of questions on this fishing excursion. They're probably wondering, can, can God still use us? Probably saying to themselves, man, we're trained fishermen and we can't even catch fish. The one thing that we're trained to do, can God even use us? Probably saying, Peter, you blew it a few days ago. We, we all ran and hid is God going to do anything with our lives? So I think what John is showing us here is that the disciples need to kind of relearn this lesson that Jesus began in John chapter 15. If God is still going to use them in the future, they need to remember the lesson that apart from Jesus, they can do nothing. That apart from the vine, you cannot bear any kind of fruits. It's really important as you think about kind of moving forward with your life and God kind of using you for his purpose, that if you get detached from the vine at all, you will bear absolutely no fruits. Even the disciples here can't even catch a fish until verse 6, Jesus tells them exactly where to fish. 
Verse 6, this voice kind of tells them to cast the net on the other side of the boat. And, and after they, they obey Jesus' instructions, they, they catch a large quantity of fish. Now, it's at this moment that I think John kind of puts two and two together. He's kind of remembering, wait, we've, we've been here before. This reminds me of Luke chapter 5, almost exactly. And so John says, this is the Lord. This is Jesus. And so Peter jumps into the water and swims about 100 yards to shore to get to where Jesus is. Now, when, when Peter and the rest of the disciples get to shore, notice the kind of scene that's painted for us. It's, it's quite bizarre. You have Jesus who has started this fire, and he's cooking breakfast for the disciples. That's a bizarre way to end John's gospel, but it is, it is intentional because John is trying to, to show us something here. I think what John is trying to do, what, what Jesus is doing with Peter and with the disciples, is he's trying to recreate a scene from their past in order to address it, in order to deal with it, so that they can move forward and for him to use them to change the world. Notice what's going on here. You have some of the same themes that we've seen throughout John's gospel. The disciples don't recognize Jesus at first, but then they do. The disciples are fishing, and they're fishing on the Lake of Galilee. We've seen that before. Jesus somewhat miraculously allows them to catch a lot of fish, kind of multiplies it here. Jesus, in verse 13, kind of takes bread. We've seen some of these same things, some of these same patterns, and Jesus is recreating this scene in order to address the thing that's hanging up the disciples from being used by God in the future. If you look even at verse 9, Jesus has, has created this fire. And it's not just any kind of fire, but the text describes it as a charcoal fire. We've seen that before. If you remember John chapter 18, it was a charcoal fire that Peter was standing around when he was asked that question from that servant girl, hey, I recognize your accent. You're one of Jesus's followers, aren't you? And he denies it. Then someone else says, no, 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 I recognize you from the garden. You, you chopped off the ear of one of my relatives. I'm never going to forget that. You're, you're one of Jesus' followers, aren't you? And it was around this charcoal fire that, that Peter denies Jesus. And so we find Jesus kind of recreating that scene with this charcoal fire with Peter. That this charcoal fire points Peter to the greatest failure of his life. See, everything about this setting is bringing him back to something in his past that Peter has allowed to define him that is, is holding him back from God actually using him in the future. Just a couple of verses, Jesus is even going to ask Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Even the dialogue is going to bring Peter back to the, to the fire when he denied Jesus three times. So you think Jesus is recreating this scene. He's asking this question three times, but he's not doing it to shame Peter. He's doing it to save Peter from his illusions. He's trying to, to save Peter from, from this paralysis of this fear of his past in order for Peter to move forward in the future. Peter, who, who had been so prideful 
Peter, who is so confident that even if all of these other disciples are going to fall away, Peter will not fall away. He needed to be broken of his self-reliance and his self-sufficiency. So God allows him to be devastated by these three denials and, and for him to be absolutely broken. And so we find Peter kind of get to the shore here. And in this restorative scene between Peter and Jesus, notice one of the first things that Jesus tells Peter. If you look at it in verse 12, he tells Peter, come and have breakfast with me. Come and have breakfast with me. One of the first things that he tells Peter after Peter had denied Jesus three times. Oh, there's, there's so much power in this phrase. I think we see the, the heart of God being depicted in the way that Jesus just lovingly invites Peter into his presence freely by his grace. This come and have breakfast, I think is Jesus' way of telling Peter, Peter, come, let me serve you. Peter, come, I, I just want to be with you. I just want to connect with you, Peter. Peter, I know you've been carrying the, the weight and the burden of, of the guilt and the shame of your denials, but Peter, come and have breakfast with me. Come and be with me in my presence because you need to know that everything in your past is not greater than my grace. Come and have breakfast with me. See, this free invitation that Jesus gives to Peter is something that we need to remind ourselves of. I just wonder if there are people here this morning that you need, to, you need to hear and feel the heart of God towards you this morning. If you are wondering, can God still use me? If you're wondering, man, I blew it. Man, I failed spiritually. I wonder if you can hear Jesus say to you because of the gospel, come and have breakfast with me. That maybe you feel like there's this distance between you and Jesus because of the things that you've done in your past that maybe you feel like you're on the, the boat of your life in the middle of the sea and Jesus is out there on the shore and there's this distance. And maybe you're wondering, can, can I ever get close to Jesus again? Can I ever have that intimacy that I used to have before I failed spiritually? I wonder, can you by faith hear the words of Jesus say, come and have breakfast with me? So let me point out what, what we don't see here. We don't see Peter swim up on shore, and we don't see Jesus with his arms crossed, frowning, shaking his head in disappointment at Peter. We don't see that at all. We don't see, we don't see Jesus whip out this, this religious list of things that Peter needs to do in order for Jesus to invite him to have breakfast with him. But also notice what Peter doesn't do. Peter doesn't get up on shore and Peter doesn't come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I know I just denied you a couple days ago, but look at my journal. Look, I've been nailing my devotions. I've been memorizing the book of Leviticus. Can, can I have a seat with you at breakfast? Have, have I earned that with you? Jesus, I've been going to the synagogue every day. Perfect attendance. I've been, I've been serving the poor. Can I have a, a seat with you at the table? We, we don't see that here. And the reason why is because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross just days before this scene. 
If you remember, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said these three powerful words that have the ability to change our lives and change the way we think about our past, that Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. And I wonder if those words were kind of sinking into Peter's heart and Peter's mind, that everything that Peter had done, all of his mistakes, all of his sin, all of his denials had been dealt with fully on the cross because of Jesus' death. And I wonder if it was starting to connect with Peter. And I wonder if it's connecting with you today that your past does not define you, that your mistakes do not define you. All of those things that you are ashamed of, all of the guilt have no power over you because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross when he declared, it is finished. Look, this is a powerful moment between Jesus and Peter, but it's only powerful because of what Jesus just accomplished on the cross. That for Peter now, who who needs to, to shake free of the chains of his past, he needs to be reminded that his past does not define him. What defines him now is what Jesus accomplished in full on the cross and in his resurrection. I wonder if you, can, if you can hear this today by faith, that the way to move forward, the way that God can use you still has less to do with what you need to do for God, how you need to perform for God. And it has everything to do with you believing that everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross was for you and your sin. Not just sin, not just the sin of the world, but your personal sin Jesus dealt with one once and for all. So the way to kind of move forward as Jesus addresses Peter's past, as Jesus wants to address the things in your past, is to by faith hear Jesus say, every moment of the day, come and have breakfast with me. Come and have fellowship with me. There's nothing that's going to keep me from loving you because of what I did on And so Jesus lavishes this grace upon Peter as he deals with his past. But he's not through with Peter. Peter's not off the hook there. He has this conversation with uh, Jesus in verses 15 through 17 that deals with Peter's heart. I love what Jesus does here. He's so incredible in this conversation. Because remember, Jesus knows that Peter will eventually be this foundational piece that he builds his church upon. Jesus knows that Peter's going to go on. He's going to lead the church. He's going to write a few letters in the New Testament. And so what Jesus does with Peter here is exactly what we've seen Jesus do with nearly every person he has encountered in John's gospel, that Jesus will invade the deep places of Peter's heart where that throne is, where whatever's on that throne dictates how you live, Jesus will invade that space and he will expose exactly what is on Peter's throne. See, in this conversation, we we see a theme of threes. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We see Peter's response three times, some variation of, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then the response to that by Jesus is to give these three exhortations to feed my sheep, which is a metaphor to take care of my people, lead my church, take care of my followers. Jesus is beginning to show Peter kind of a picture of how God still wants to use Peter, 
But before he does, he needs to get to what's on the throne of Peter's heart. And I think the way that Jesus does that is this question that we see in verse 15, where he asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we're not exactly sure what the these refers to. It could be all kinds of different things. The these could refer to the 153 fish that they just caught because for them to sell all those fish, they would have made a lot of money. And so Jesus could be saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than wealth? Do you love me more than financial security? The these could also refer to maybe the fishing gear that was lying around them. So Jesus could be asking them, hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than your material possessions, more than everything in your life? Do you love me more than that? The these could also refer to the disciples themselves. These are some of Peter's closest friendships. This is kind of his family. So Jesus could be asking him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than your closest relationships? Or that these could actually refer to the disciples' love for Jesus. That Jesus could be asking Peter, hey, Peter, Simon of John, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Now, honestly, it could actually be all four of them at once as Jesus is trying to explore the, the deep places of his heart. But I find that last option to be, to be quite interesting because of what we already know about Peter. That if Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Notice Peter's response. He says to, to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, period. He doesn't, he doesn't finish it and say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you more than these disciples love you. In essence, Peter's probably saying here, look, Jesus, I'm not going to tell you that I love you more than these disciples love you because I've already done that. I did that just a few days ago and it didn't end well for me. Like I wonder in this conversation as, as Jesus is trying to get to that source, the, the root issue of what led Peter astray to denying him, I wonder if Peter in this moment is remembering the last words that are recorded for us in the Gospels of what Peter said directly to Jesus. It occurs in Matthew 26, verse 33. This is the last thing recorded for us in the Gospels of what Peter said to Jesus. It was at the, the Last Supper. He says to Jesus, even if everyone else, referring to the disciples, falls away and deserts you, I will not. I will die for you. Translation, Jesus, I love you more than these disciples love you. The last thing that Peter says to Jesus, so Jesus kind of circles back with Peter and says to, to, to Peter, presumably, Peter, are you still trying to compete with these other disciples? Are you trying to show that you have greater devotion to me than the rest? Or Peter, do you love me just for me? Peter, are you, are you still relying on yourself? Are you still trying to be self-reliant and self-sufficient and prideful? Or Peter, do you love me for me? What's more, he asked Peter two more times, do you love me? And each time, Peter says, yes, Lord, you, you know all things. You're searching every, every area of my heart. You know that I love you. This question by Jesus is such a searching question. He doesn't ask Peter, 
What do you know? He doesn't ask Peter, what do you feel? He asks Peter, do you love me? See, it's interesting because that question exposes what, what's really on the throne of Peter's heart because at the end of the day, you and I do whatever we love to do. Like our desires dictate how we live. It's not what we say. It's what we love that determines how we live. So this question, do you love me? It's a searching question. It's kind of a haunting question. But this morning, how would you answer that question? If the Lord Jesus was standing right in front of you today and he says to you, do you love me? And he says, do you love me more than these? And I just want you to fill in the blank of whatever these you want in that question. Do you honestly love Jesus more than you love your family? Just to honestly try to answer that question in your own heart. Do you love Jesus more than you love your own kids? Do you love Jesus more than you love your parents? Do you love Jesus more than you love your spouse? Do you love Jesus more than you love your job or your success or your financial security or whatever kind of possession you want to fill in the blank? In fact, do you love Jesus more than your entire life? Look, I think this is where John is trying to kind of land the plane for us. Is he, he wants us not just to know Jesus, not just to believe in Jesus, but he wants us to love Jesus with all that we are. John has been doing some amazing things for us. He has, he has shown us why we should know Jesus, why we should believe in him. But I wonder if John was up here with us this morning. I wonder if he were to say, look, if you claim to know Jesus, but you don't love Jesus with all that you are, then, then I'm not so sure that you truly believe in Jesus. See, everything that he's taken us through is, is coming to this close of making sure that what is on the throne of your heart is the Lord Jesus himself. Do you Love Jesus. You look at Peter for just a moment. Peter has had a rough couple days. This is quite a, a journey he's been on. He goes in the Last Supper to declaring this great love and devotion to Jesus. I'm never going to betray you, never going to deny you, to eventually denying him three times. And then he gets to this scene, and, and he can declare a love for Jesus. And, and you wonder, what, what changed in Peter's life? Like, how did he go from denying to now declaring love for him to, in just a few weeks from now, he's going to be boldly proclaiming the gospel with, with such power? What was the turning point in Peter's life? The turning point, what happened right in the middle there, is what Jesus did on the cross for him. And I think this absolutely messed up Peter in the best way possible. Peter, who just denied Jesus, hears that this Jesus, this Son of God, this perfect, blameless Son of God is up on a cross dying for his sin, dying for his rebellion, taking his penalty that he deserved. And I think it changed Peter's life forever. And so look, this morning, if you are wrestling with having a love for Jesus, you're wondering, man, I, I don't know if I love Jesus more than my own life or more than these other aspects. I just want to encourage you, 
And this is so simple. It's so basic, but it's so powerful. Come back to the cross of Jesus. Come back to Calvary, where God's infinite love was put on display for you and your sin. It's not something you deserved. It's not something that you earned on your own performance. And yet God, even when you were an enemy of his, he sends his only son, Jesus Christ, to take your place. And church, I am so confident the more you dwell upon that, the more that you meditate on Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, the more that your heart of stone that may not be filled with the love for Jesus slowly starts to go away and these desires for Jesus start to fill your heart and and in your life. Come back to the cross to allow Jesus to be on the throne of your heart. It's exactly what Jesus does with Peter as he addresses his heart. Well, Jesus is not done with Peter yet. The last thing I want to point out here is that Jesus redefines his future. I think this is really important. If you're thinking about, can God still use me? What Jesus does here is he redefines the future of Peter by specifically predicting the kind of death that he's going to die. If you look at verse 18, Jesus uses this phrase to stretch out your hands, which was a a common phrase used for the crucifixion. This is another way to say that that Peter's going to be crucified. And that's what John alludes to in verse 19. We know from different historians that Peter does die. He's crucified. Some scholars believe that he was actually crucified upside down because he didn't count it worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior Jesus. What I find so interesting about this is that Peter had to live three more decades with this prediction hanging over his head. And I thought to myself, why is that so helpful for Peter? Why would Jesus do that? What what is Jesus trying to do with Peter? And I was thinking more about this, and and I thought to myself, you know, sometimes we think about the restoration of Peter, this amazing conversation of reconciliation, and and we can almost think that this is kind of a, a time in which Jesus and Peter start to hug it out. Like they had some awkward moments, they hit a rough patch, Peter denied him, Peter was impulsive, and and they're kind of hugging it out where they're looking at each other like, are we all right? Yeah, we're all right. You're my guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm still your guy. You know, and they, they kind of move forward. It's kind of this, this warm kind of exchange. But I don't think that's what's going on here because Jesus immediately turns to the issue of death for Peter's future. But notice, this time, this does not lead to Peter having a type of fear and a type of paralysis in his life. This prediction, this redefinition of his future actually propels Peter forward in becoming a leader of the early church. And I think the key difference now is that for Peter, his greatest fear of death has been eclipsed by a greater love for Jesus and it sets him free that for Peter now, I think the reason he denied Jesus three times was because of fear. He didn't want to be crucified alongside Jesus. But now Jesus tells him that you're going to be crucified eventually. And instead of that leading to a type of paralysis, it propels Peter forward. And Jesus, I think, helps Peter get there with the three words in verse 22, where he tells Peter, you follow me. 
This is really important. If you can resonate with Peter, who Peter's kind of competing with other people, focused on what other people think. Peter, who the voices of his past is haunting him. Jesus directs him and says, look, don't pay attention to any of those things. You keep your focus on me. You make sure that your love for me is greater than all these other things, that you focus on me to move forward and for me to use you. See, this moment that feels so warm, it feels like the good ending to this story, like the band's back together again. You know, kind of this this great feeling at the end. Jesus turns to Peter and says, look, the thing that you're most afraid of, the worst case scenario in your life is exactly where you are headed, that you will be crucified. Look, that is a terrifying thing, but that is a liberating thing. See, this is a word that is not only for Peter, But I believe this is a word for every follower of Jesus today. Your life may not end on a cross, but according to Jesus, if you take verse 22 seriously and you follow Jesus, according to Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone follows me, you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you die daily. That is the way that you move forward. That is the way that God will use you it's taking the same picture we see with Peter and is taking that wonderful cross of Jesus and it is crucifying your selfish desires, your pride, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, and it is dying to yourself over and over and over and over again so that God can use you maximum effectiveness today. And so look, what, what are you so afraid of? What's the substance of your paralysis? What's what's causing that question, can God still use me? Is it the shame of your past, the mistakes of your past? Look, it's already been dealt with at the cross of Calvary. Are you afraid of the future at, at the unknown? You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the best case scenario coming your way where you will be seated in the heavenlies, the right hand of God, you're hidden in Jesus even now and that you will spend forever and ever with the King of kings, the Lord and lords, Jesus Christ himself. It's the best case scenario. And if God can use a denier like Peter, a murderer like Paul, an adulterer like King David, he can surely use you and me if you find yourself in the cross and in the empty tomb. Your short-term future is dying daily. Your long-term future is to be in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, with Jesus himself every single day. And so to move forward, stop looking backward. Stop looking in the future. Keep your eyes on Jesus one day at a time. His grace is enough. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the wonderful truth that we see in this passage, the life-changing truth. Lord, that you took Peter, a man who denied you, a man who failed you, And you lavished your grace upon him in such a way that absolutely transformed him. God, you silenced his fears. You silenced the ghosts of his past. And God, you gave him a trajectory here in John 21 that, Lord, it's hard to swallow, but God allowed him to move forward. And Lord, I pray for us today that you would give us eyes to see that. God, that the way to move forward is actually the way of the cross. 
Lord, I pray for those who, Lord, are, are Lord, handcuffed to fear. Pray for those who are wrestling with the mistakes of their past, wondering how you can still use them. I pray, God, that you would set them free today. Pray for those who are worried about the future, about the unknown, wondering what their life is going to look like. God, I pray that you would set them free from that kind of bondage. And that, God, you would help us one day at a time to follow after Jesus, to keep our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, because that's all that we need, and that's all that you've promised. I pray in Jesus' name.